here, one of the um, new things that I've been trying to do is um, I've been trying to wake up early in the morning and uh, going for a run. Uh, now, I, I hate running. I hate jogging. I think the whole concept is ridiculous. Um, my wife, on the other hand, she loves running. She loves jogging. She's been trying to get me to uh, do that for years, but I've refused. I've refused. Um, to me, it's just so boring. Um, it's so dull. Uh, and uh, on top of that, uh, the Bible actually says that people who jog are wicked and evil. You probably didn't know that, but it really does. In Proverbs chapter 28, this is legit, you can look it up. Proverbs 28, it says, the wicked run when no one is chasing them. Okay, so that's, that's in the Bible, it's in there. So not only is jogging boring, but it's like, well, the Bible says people who jog are wicked. So why would I ever want to go do that? But I'm with the new year, like, um, you know, I had the, the, the long surgery last year, so that lung is still kind of recovering. It's not quite where it used to be. So uh, unfortunately, doing cardio and, and jogging, it's actually, apparently the doctor says, really, really good for my lung function to get that back up and working. And not only that, but I, I really do want to try to just kind of live a more overall healthy lifestyle and try to be around as long as possible for my kids. So, you know, with the new year, I decided my new thing's going to be, I'm, I'm going to get up at 5 a.m. every day, Monday through Friday. I'm going to go do a couple miles on the treadmill. Um, I've got to do it on the treadmill because on the treadmill, I can set my phone, and I can watch Netflix, and if I'm not watching TV while I jog, I just get too bored and quit. So that helps me get through it. So get up at 5 a.m., go run a couple miles on the treadmill, um, then uh, come back in, make some breakfast for myself, put on a pot of coffee, and then you know before the kids get up or anything, just have some nice quiet with a, a peaceful house with, with four kids, like you never have that. Have some nice time with a house to myself with with some breakfast, some hot coffee, and just some time reading. And the weird thing is, since I've started doing this, um, now I actually kind of really enjoy it. Since I started it, like, now I actually look forward to waking up early. I actually look forward to going for that run. You know, you hear people say, you know, the whole runner's high thing, but it, it actually is legit. Like, after I finish running, I, I have this great sense of kind of accomplishment. Like, man, like, I can, I can take today. Like, I've already done something for myself, so like, it's going to be a good day. You really get that feeling. So waking up early, doing that, then having that quiet time in the house, you know, with just some breakfast, a hot cup of coffee in my Bible, I've really started to enjoy it to where now, like, I actually want to get up early and go for a run. But it's weird, because while I want to get up early and go for a run, I have this complete other contrasting desire that is just as legitimate. And that other desire is to turn my alarm off every morning and sleep every possible second that I can. Right? So I have this desire to get up, to get out of bed early when my alarm goes off and go for a run. But at the same time, I have this competing desire to turn the alarm off and go back to sleep. I mean, I love sleep. And I know everybody says that, but they're like, I'm really, really good at sleeping. You can ask my wife. Like, I can fall asleep. Like, you give me two minutes and I'll be out. This is true. I'm not making this up. I have legitimately fallen asleep on a roller coaster before, right? It's that SeaWorld in Orlando, because you know how you sit in, and then it takes a minute, and then, you know, as you're kind of going up the hill, it's kind of, you know, shaking a little bit, and it's nice and relaxed, and I've fallen asleep on that. So um, me and sleep are in a committed long-term relationship. I really, really, really love sleep. So every single morning, there's this, like, battle raging inside of me, where it's like, okay, I want to get up. I want to do the responsible thing. I want to get out of bed and go for a run. But then there's that same, just as strong competing desire of, no, I think I really want to turn this alarm off and sleep for every possible minute that I can. And to be honest, like, 
each day it's a battle. It's like 50-50 if I actually do it and get up and get up early or if I just sleep in as long as possible. It's a struggle every single day where these competing desires are fighting for my attention. Now, I say all that because if I'm being honest, um, I think this same tension of you know, having two contrasting and competing desires, they're both real, they're both genuine, they're, they're, they're both there inside of me, but having these two competing opposite desires I think that same tension is true for me spiritually in my relationship with God, right? And if you're being honest, it's probably true for a lot of you in your relationship with God, where it's like I have this very real, it's very genuine, it's not contrived. I have this very real desire inside of me to love God more and more, to serve God faithfully, to to follow God faithfully, to listen to Him, to obey Him and do what He says. Like that's a very real strong desire that's inside of me. But if I'm honest, like, there's this other desire inside of me. And this other desire is consistently and constantly being pulled away from God towards sin. It's constantly being tempted towards sin. And, and if I may be so blunt as to say, that other part of me in a weird way kind of even desires sin at times. And that other desire weakens my love and my affections for God. So for me, it's like this daily struggle where there's almost these two sides of me that are competing for allegiance of my heart. And now, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, and you're willing to be honest with yourself, you've probably felt the same way. And I think a lot of the times when we feel this way, we, we probably think we're the only ones, right? We probably feel like, man, like, I know I'm supposed to be a Christian, I know I'm supposed to love Jesus, and like my desire should only be for Him, and so why am I also, why is there another part of me that's desiring all this stuff that I shouldn't? desire. And when you feel that tension, you probably feel like, well, maybe I just don't love God good enough or well enough. Maybe I'm just not a good enough Christian. It must be something that's only wrong with me. But what Paul's going to show us today in the second half of Romans 7 is that this is actually a tension. This is actually a struggle that every single Christian experiences. This, this struggle with those opposite contrasting desires inside of us, the desire to serve God and follow Him, and then the other desire to serve ourselves and, and turn from God and pursue sin. Paul's going to show us that, that this struggle with these two desires are something that every follower of Jesus experiences. So, man, these few verses we're reading today, these are, um, I think, some of the most transparent and some of the most relatable verses in the entire Bible. So verse 14 is where we left off last week. Um, if you're new with us, this is a guy named Paul writing. So this is what Paul says. He says, so the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself. And listen to this. He says, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It is the sin that is living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my old sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing it. It is sin living in me that does it. I've discovered this principle of life. That when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is this other power that is working inside of me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. So how many of you, well, you just read that passage, and in a weird way, you're kind of a little encouraged? Because like, you hear Paul just, again, being completely transparent, just completely like wearing his emotions on his sleeve, and he say, man, like, I want to follow God, I want to serve God, I want to obey God and follow his commands, but I end up not doing it. And I want to avoid evil, I want to stay away from evil, but when I want to avoid evil, I just end up committing evil and doing what's wrong. And I don't know about you, but I read that, I'm like, man, like, I thought I was the only one, right? It's a little encouraging that, that Paul is showing us that, we, that we're all together in this, that this is a tension that all of us experience in our relationship with God. So let's just spend a few minutes kind of unpacking this and seeing how it applies to us today. So if you're taking notes, here's kind of the, the big overarching picture, the big point that I think Paul's painting in this passage. It's that every Christian has a war raging inside of them. Right? Every single Christian, every single follower of Jesus has a war raging inside of them. Right? You, you can't read through this passage without picking up on this deep internal struggle that is going on inside of Paul and that he shows is also going on inside each and every single one of us, right? Like, it's this picture that he's saying that there's the old Paul, and the old Paul has his old sinful nature, and that's his old nature, that that nature didn't desire God. That nature didn't desire to obey God. That nature desired to serve himself and to pursue sin. But then he's saying that through Christ, there's a new nature, that out of salvation, he's received this new heart, and that new heart does desire God. That new heart does desire to follow God and to serve him and to obey his commands and live for him. But what we see here in this passage is he's saying, but, but in this flawed, sinful body, in living in this flawed, sinful world, there is still part of that old nature that is inside of him. And there is still part of that old nature that's inside all of us. And that old nature is competing with our new nature for our allegiance. That there is a battle of our old self and our new self in Christ that is being waged inside each of our hearts. Right? Over in Galatians, um, the same guy's writing, Paul writes the book of Galatians, and he says the same thing, but he basically sums up this whole chapter in one verse. In Galatians 17, this is how he puts it. He says, the sinful nature wants to do what is evil, which is opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. Those two forces are constantly fighting each other. Right? That's what Paul says, that these two forces, these two competing and contrasting desires, the desire to turn from God and the desire to serve God faithfully, are doing battle inside of our hearts all the time. Right? So many of you back in high school or middle school or if you're um, a student now, um, you may have had it who at some point read the book, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, unfortunately, I never read it um, because, as I've said before, I was a terrible student. I always procrastinated, so I always had to like, end up relying on cliff notes at the last second. But um, I, I kind of want to go back and read it now because if you've read it, like, there's so many similarities between Romans 7 and the plot of that book. The, the book is basically a summary of what Paul's talking about here because in the book there's um, this scientist named Dr. Jekyll and again, like if I get any of these details wrong, I apologize. Because again, I haven't read the book. I went on Wikipedia this week and read the plot summary. So if Wikipedia is wrong, blame Wikipedia, not me. 
But what Wikipedia says is, you know, there's a scientist named Dr. Jekyll, and Dr. Jekyll, he's an honest, upstanding, good man. But he creates this potion, and when he drinks the potion, it brings out his alter ego, who's called Mr. Hyde. And where Dr. Jekyll is this honest, upstanding man, Mr. Hyde is this violent killer of a man. Right? And so the whole book is about the dual nature of this one man. It's about how it's one man, but there are two sides of him that are completely different. They are contrasting and competing for his allegiance. And that's basically what Paul's saying here in Romans 7. That we have the old self, the old nature, but we have a new nature, a new heart in God. But these two natures are constantly fighting for our allegiance. There's a war, there is a battle going on inside the hearts of every single one of us who follow Jesus. Now, what do we do about that? Right? That's kind of scary, obviously. That's like, all right, well, like, like man, that's kind of overwhelming. Like, how, how, what am I supposed to do? Well, I think Paul gives us a few things here. In uh, Romans 8, the next chapter, which we're going to get into two weeks from today, he's going to go into even more detail of how we fight in this battle, how we wage war against the old sinful nature. But I think he does point out some things for us to focus on here at the end of chapter 7. So the first thing that he kind of shows us here you're taking notes, is that to, to have victory in this battle inside of us, we must be honest about ourselves, right? If we want to have a shot at victory in this daily battle that we are going through, we have to be honest about ourselves. I, I mean, in this passage, Paul, again, is just completely, brutally transparent and honest about where he's at. I, I mean, just look at verse 18 again. He says, I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature. I mean, he is just putting all of the cards on the table. He's saying, in me, in myself, apart from Christ, in my sinful nature, in my heart, there is nothing that is good in me. When we read Paul here, there is not an ounce of self-righteousness in his posture at all. There is not any self-righteousness in the way he sees himself. And I think this is so important for us because Unfortunately, in our culture, especially here in the South, I think in the church, we have created this church culture where what people think is expected of them is they think that, that to come into a place like this, to come into a church and really be part of a church, what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to put on a facade, put on a mask, hide all their faults, hide all their struggles, hide all their sins, pretend like they're not there, and then come in here pretending like they've got everything together. Right? And unfortunately, kind of in the South, in the Bible Belt, that's the picture that is painted about what you're supposed to do when you come to church. And, and so most of us, I think, would feel incredibly uncomfortable being as honest about our struggles as Paul is. Right? I mean, most of us would be incredibly uncomfortable to, to walk into here, to find a few friends, to, to kind of call them over before service and say, hey, can I just be honest with you? Um, I'm really struggling right now. Like, work is going awful, you know, stuff at home is not good, like my life just sucks right now, and, and so to kind of, you know, numb the pain, like I get home at night and I just want to abuse alcohol and get blackout drunk because yeah, that, that just brings numbness to all the pain, and I know I shouldn't go that direction, I know that's not healthy, and I shouldn't do that, but that's what I'm wanting to do. Can you encourage me? Can you walk with me? Can you pray for me? Or, or most of us would feel incredibly uncomfortable coming in here and grabbing a few people and saying, hey, listen, um, like, my marriage is falling apart. 
like uh, there's no intimacy with my spouse. We're at each other's throats all the time. We're barely talking. And not only that, but there's this other person at work who's giving me attention that my spouse isn't, and I kind of want to sleep with that person at work, and I know I shouldn't do that, but that's what I'm wanting to do, but, but I know I shouldn't. Come in, can you support me? Can you pray for me? Can you walk with me? Most of us would feel incredibly uncomfortable doing that, wouldn't we? But I think what we see from Paul is if he were to walk into this room today, he would grab a few of us and say, hey man, I'm struggling Like, I want to love God more. I want my affections to be for God, but they're not. I want to love God, but I don't even really feel like I love Him. My affections are for other things. Instead of pursuing God, I have this other desire where I'm wanting to pursue sin and myself and my own pleasure. That's Paul's attitude. That's what he would do if Paul walked in here today. And so if we want to even have a shot at having victory in this daily battle, we've got to be first honest with ourselves about the struggles in our hearts. But I think we've got to get to a point where we are also honest with one another about the struggles that are going on in our hearts. Where we can support one another. I mean, that's why God gives the church. That's why we are here to walk through and support and love and encourage one another. But we've got to be honest, right? We've got to be sober-minded that there is this very real battle inside of our hearts. And we have to make sure that we are fighting, because if not, we are going to lose. Right? We've got to be honest that every day when we wake up, when you get out of bed, you've got to be honest with yourself that it's going to be a struggle. That, that whether you serve God that day or whether you serve yourself that day, it's going to be a battle. It's not just going to happen. It's not just going to fall into place naturally. You're going to have to fight for it. You've got to be prepared for a fight every single day. And so well, I think one of the most iconic moments in at least modern sports history is the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, the fight back in uh, 1990 between uh, Mike Tyson and Buster Douglas. So uh, a lot of you will you know, remember that fight very vividly. Because at the time of the fight, Mike Tyson was undefeated. He was just like tearing people apart. I mean, he was the baddest man on the planet. He just looked absolutely unstoppable. So he came into this fight with Buster Douglas, who, um, you know, wasn't a bad boxer, but like he wasn't this up-and-coming superstar or anything like that. And so everybody knew that like this wasn't going to be a fight. Mike Tyson was just going to dominate the entire thing. You know, he's going to knock out Buster Douglas in a round or two, and the thing would be over. I mean, if you went to Vegas and bet on the fight, Mike Tyson was a 42-to-1 favorite. Right, so, so what that means is that if you go to Vegas and you place the bet, um, betting that Mike Tyson was going to win the fight, you would have to put $42 on the line just to win $1 in return. Right, and on the flip side, if you placed the bet that Buster Douglas was going to win the fight, all you had to do was bet $1, and for every dollar that you bet, you would win $42 in return. So all that to say, no one thought Buster Douglas would win this. No one gave this guy a chance. No one thought that it would even be a fight. But the night of the fight came, and then this is what happened. Check this out. Just another day of work for Mike Tyson. He looks almost bored as they call to the center of the ring by the referee. The stage is set. We're set to go. Bob Sheridan here. You see Mike Tyson and what happened. We give a lot of credit to Buster Douglas for making this a big, big fight. Tyson trying to end it with one big shot again. 
He's down. He comes to the uppercut. Come on, Rubble. Bust his throat. Just back. Am I the only one that kind of gets chills, like, even just watching that? Right? Like, it's incredible, right? But Buster Douglas shocks the world and knocked out the baddest man on the planet. Now, here's the question. How did that happen? What happened there? And what happened was not that Buster Douglas was a better boxer than Mike Tyson. Nobody believes that. If you ask Buster Douglas, and he was being honest, he wouldn't even tell you that he was a better boxer than Mike Tyson. He wouldn't argue against that. The reason that Mike Tyson lost, and he's admitted this in interviews since, the reason Mike Tyson lost was because he wasn't expecting it to be a fight. He didn't think it was going to be a fight. He thought it was going to be a cakewalk, and he was going to walk in and knock this guy out, and he would collect his paycheck and go home. Um, recently, I, I read an article where um, Bobby Brown did an interview um, with Questlove on Questlove's podcast, and the night before the fight, Bobby Brown and Mike Tyson were actually hanging out at Mike Tyson's hotel in Tokyo where the fight was, and this is what Bobby Brown said about the night before. He said, Mike and I were in Japan. We basically stayed up all night partying with maybe 12 girls and just me and Mike. It was just the funniest night ever. We had a ball. But I kept telling him, I kept telling him, I kept telling him. I was like, Mike, you need to get some sleep. You got to fight tomorrow. And Mike said, Bobby, listen. But the Douglas. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't do it. I can't do it. I, want, I wanted to get through the whole quote, but I couldn't. I told Christy last night, I was like, hey, I'm like telling this like Mike Tyson story. I think I'm going to do, you know, the voice. I'm going to do the impersonation. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. And she's just like, no, <laughs> it's not. So. Oh, gosh. Yeah. All right. The quote's actually really important, all right? So to come back in and listen. So again, Bobby Brown's like, Mike, Mike, get some sleep, get some rest, you've got to fight tomorrow. <laughs> and then Mike said, Bobby, listen, Buster Douglas, he's an amateur. I could beat him if I didn't sleep for five weeks. Watch how quick this fight ends. This is going to be one of my quickest fights. Mike Tyson got knocked out by someone who was a worse boxer than him because he was not prepared for a fight. He wasn't going into it thinking it was going to be a fight, and that's the reason he lost. So with us, we have to be honest, we have to be sober-minded that when we come to Christ, when we come to faith in Jesus, He gives us this new heart. He gives us this new nature, but there is still this fight going on inside of us between our new nature and our old nature. These two natures are fighting for control of our lives. Our old nature wants to draw us back into sin. It wants to bring us back and re-enslave us to the sin that used to hold us captive. 
And so we've got to be so careful that if, if we just approach this haphazardly, if we just kind of walk into this thinking, you know, this isn't going to be a fight, this isn't going to be a battle, I've kind of arrived in my relationship with God, I'm good, I don't need to worry about this. Man, if that's how we approach it, we're going to end up like Mike Tyson, and we're going to get knocked on our butts and not know what hit us. The first thing I think that Paul shows us is we've got to be honest with ourselves about this very real struggle that's going on inside our hearts. I think the second thing he points out here to have victory in this battle is we've got to remember that God desires good for us. We have to remember the simple, basic truth that in God's heart as a father, he wants what is good for you and I. Look at verse 22. Paul says, I love God's law with all my heart. In other words, I love God's commands with all my heart. But there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. And this power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. He says, I love God's law. I love God's commands. I think the reason that Paul is saying that is because Paul understands this foundational truth that the commands of God are there for our good. Right? That the commands of God are not there to keep us from joy. The commands of, the, of God are not there to keep us from pleasure. The commands of God are, at the end of the day, there so we can experience joy. And so that we can experience pleasure. And so that we can experience peace. And since God is our creator, he knows best how those things can be experienced. So Paul says, I I love God's law. I love God's commands. I know that they're there for my good. They're there for my benefit. I know that if I follow God's commands, it will lead to joy and peace and pleasure. But he says, though, but there's this other part of me that's at war with my mind. That's so important to notice that he specifically points out that his sinful nature is first at war with his mind. Right? He's saying that, that this battle primarily takes place in our minds, in our thought process. Right? It's that God's commands always lead to peace, always lead to joy, always lead to pleasure, but our sinful nature tries to get us to distrust that, to not believe that. Our sinful nature wants us to believe in our minds that God ultimately doesn't want our joy and our pleasure and our peace. I mean, go all the way back to the garden, and we see the the first temptation. We see Satan tempting Adam and Eve. And how did Satan tempt them? When you boil it down, he was just tempting them to change their mind, right? Because God said, hey, guys, you can do whatever you want. You can have whatever you want. You can eat whatever you want. Just don't eat the fruit of this one tree in the middle of the garden, because if you eat the fruit of that tree, you'll die. And then, so what did Satan do when he came along? He, He doesn't come up to them and say, hey, guys. Let me just level with you. God said, if you eat the fruit of this tree, you're going to die. God's right. You will. It's true. God's being honest with you. But listen, guys, the fruit of that tree, man, it's awesome. Like, it's just so good. It's like so much sweeter than all the other fruit. It's so much juicier than all the other fruit. Yeah, God was telling you the truth. If you eat it, you're going to die. But you know what, guys? It will be worth it. It's good enough. Just go ahead and do it and then die happy. That's not how they were tempted, was it? No, Satan comes along and says, what? God told you that if you eat the fruit of this tree, you're going to die? No, 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 that's not true. What God knows that he doesn't want you to know is that if you eat the fruit of this tree, then you'll actually be alive for the very first 
time. And God doesn't want you to actually be alive and experience joy and pleasure and all of these things. See, when we look at it, the temptation of Adam and Eve, it was a temptation for them to change their mind. To make the choice not to trust and not to believe that what God had said was good for them. And ultimately, that's how temptation begins. That's how this battle begins in our hearts, right? So, so take something like sexuality. God says, hey, the, the way to experience the most pleasure, the, the way that you experience the most sexual satisfaction is within the security and the intimacy of marriage. And God wants us to experience those things. And so he says the way that you experience that best is within the security of marriage. But then what temptation does is temptation tries to make us believe in our minds that God's a liar. That that's not true. That, that the way that we experience the greatest levels of sexual satisfaction and pleasure is to sleep with people that we are not married to. That temptation begins in the mind. It begins with this, this pull to not trust God. Or you take something like gossip, right? The, the temptation for us begins in the mind. It's okay. Do I actually trust that God's word is true? Do I actually believe that if I live this lifestyle gossiping, talking about people negatively behind their back, that that will ultimately lead to my destruction? Do I believe that when God says that, he's telling the truth? Or am I going to choose to distrust that? Am I going to choose to believe that God's a liar and that, no, if I go and talk about people behind their back, it will bring life to me and it will actually make me feel better about myself? Right? That's how temptation is. That's where this battle begins. It begins in our minds. There's this war in our minds. And so here's, here's the important thing. We are constantly feeding our minds. You and I, especially in today's age where we are constantly connected to everything at every moment, we are feeding our minds every second of the day. The only question is, what are we feeding our minds? Right? When you go on social media, when you're scrolling through Instagram at a stoplight or looking through Facebook, you are being preached a sermon. When you go on social media, it is preaching a message to you in the same way that I am preaching a message to you. It is trying to indoctrinate you with certain advertisements or certain worldviews or whatever it is. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just a neutral thing. That's just the way it is. Right? If, if you're really into you know, 24-hour news, whether it's if you lean left and it's CNN or MSNBC or if you lean, lean right and it's Fox News, whichever, I don't care. If you sit down and consume those you know, for hours on a day, it's preaching a message to you. It's attempting to indoctrinate you. And again, I'm not saying those are bad things. I'm not saying the intentions are bad. I'm just saying that's what happens. When you go on Netflix and you watch a show, there is some message that it's preaching. There is some doctrine about the world that it is trying to fill your mind with. That's what all media does. And so we are constantly feeding our minds. And so since this battle rages in our minds, we have to stop and be so careful and ask ourselves, well, okay, well, what am I feeding my mind? Because if I'm constantly um, feeding myself God's word and the, the, the truths of God, then that gives us the ability to trust God. If we're constantly feeding our mind God's word and, and the truth that comes from that, that, that creates this trust in our hearts towards God. It, it reminds us that what he says is true. But if what we are feeding our minds is constantly and consistently 
things and messages that our culture or our world or our friends on social media think that are contrary to Scripture, what that does is that will lead us to believe that God doesn't know what He's talking about and we don't need to believe Him anymore. This mind rages in our battle. Or this battle rages in our minds, rather. Also, there's this battle raging inside every single one of us, and it begins in our minds. So we have to ask, what are we feeding our minds? And at the end of the day, we, we have to remember, again, and this is the foundation, we have to remember that God ultimately desires good for us. God wants your good. God wants my good. God wants you to experience joy. God wants you to experience pleasure and peace, not only in eternity, but in this life. And because of that, we can trust that what he says is good. And we can be like Paul, where we say, I love the law of God with all my heart. We can love the commands of God because we know they are there for our benefit. And then the third and final thing I think we see here about this battle, if we want to have victories, we need to realize that the battle's already been won. And this is the most important thing. The other things are great. We need to try to do them. But at the end of the day, this is the most important thing. This battle that is raging inside of us every single day, while we still are wrestling in this life, at the end of the day, the battle has already been won. So look at verse 24 again. Paul says, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's just saying, hey, at the end of the day, you and I, we can't win this battle. At the end of the day, this isn't a battle that we fight on our own. The battle between the old self and the new self for our allegiance, we can't win it. But the good news is that through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus has already won the battle for us. Again, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, the fight is still going on in our hearts. Again, we still feel that struggle every day. But the outcome has been decided. The game is over. The battle has already been won. On the cross and through the resurrection, our sin was paid. Our eternity has been secured. And God has promised that when Jesus returns and He rules and He reigns forever, He will completely remove that sin nature from us. And we will live forever with Him in His kingdom in perfect peace and perfect harmony with Him forever. And so what we do in the meantime on the day to day, at the end of the day, when your head hits the pillow at night, you just got to rely on Jesus. You just got to completely and totally depend on Jesus and His grace, and believe that His grace is good enough for us. See, because the reality is, is if at the end of the day I kind of go back and view my day through the lens of looking in the mirror and putting the focus on me and how I've done. Man, most days I'm going to end the day disappointed. I'm going to be discouraged. But if at the end of the day I put my focus on Jesus and what He has done, man, every single day I'll be encouraged. See, because when I look in the mirror and I put the focus on myself, man, that leads to all sorts of doubt. That leads to all sorts of questions. Leads to questions like, man, am I even really saved? Because it's like, man, I should know better by now, but I'm still struggling with these things. Am I actually even a Christian? And, and questions like, does God actually love me? Man, as not only a Christian, but as a pastor, like I should be so much further along in my relationship 
with God. I should know better by now. Does God actually love me? See, when I look in the mirror and focus on myself, that's where it takes me. But when I look to Jesus and I look to the cross, man, it answers those questions. It tells me, yes, I'm really saved. Yes, I'm really a Christian, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus did in my place on the cross. And yes, despite all my sin and failures, yes, I am loved by God. And to show me how loved I am, He sent His only Son to take my place, to die in my place. That's how loved by God I am. We have this battle raging inside each and every one of us. We've got to be honest about it. We've got to be realistic about it. Right? And we've got to fight the battle. We've got to fight the battle in our minds and choose to trust God. We must play an active role in this battle. But at the end of the day, we realize this isn't a battle we can win on our own. And at the end of the day, we put our focus on Jesus and His cross and His, <coughs> His grace and His mercy. And we depend totally and solely on Him. <coughs> and as we close, again, if, um, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, kind of this, this tension, this struggle of these dual natures, um, I'm sure this is something you relate to, right? This is something you feel. This is something you experience most days. But to be honest with you, this is only a tension and a struggle and a battle that people who are followers of Jesus, people who are Christians, experience. Because what the Bible tells us is that apart from Christ, we don't have two natures. We just have that one nature. We just have the old sinful nature, and that old sinful nature, it doesn't desire God. It doesn't desire to serve God and to follow Him and obey Him. It just desires to serve ourselves and to magnify ourselves and to lift ourselves up and to do whatever we want to do. Listen, as you're, if you're here, and as we read what Paul has said, and as we've talked, if you're like, hey, I've never felt that tension. I've never felt that struggle. I've never felt that pull to honor God and to love God and to serve Him. Like, I honestly, if I'm being honest, just have this desire to serve myself and do what I want to do. That's the only desire inside of me. Well, if that's you, then that's because God hasn't saved you. He hasn't given you that new heart yet. He needs to do surgery on your heart and, and give you a new heart that loves Him, that desires Him, that serves Him. And the way that He seeks to accomplish that, again, like we said, was through what Jesus did on the cross. That on the cross, Jesus died to pay for our sin. All the darkness in our hearts that has turned from God, Jesus died on the cross to take care of all that, to deal with all that, so that we could be forgiven of that. And he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death, so we could be made right with God and experience eternity with him forever. And so the way into relationship with God, the way to receive this new heart that loves God, that serves God, that desires to follow God, is to trust that Jesus died in our place. And that he rose from death for us. And to come to God and say, God, I haven't been serving you. I haven't been desiring you. I've just been living for myself. I've been my own God, Lord. But today, I don't want to be my own God anymore. I want you to be my God. I want to serve you. I want to follow you. I want you to give me a new heart that loves you, that serves you, that seeks to follow you. And if you just come to God today quietly in your heart, honestly and humbly, and say that to him, he'll do it. Your sin will be forgiven. Your debt will be paid. And it'll change your heart. He will transform your life. He will do that. The Bible says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if that's you, and you've never received that new heart, you've never been given that new nature by God, you've never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, we would encourage you, don't leave here today without making that decision. Let me pray for you.